Good evening. Good evening. Please open your Bibles to Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 4. Gospel of John, chapter 4. And I will read from verse 34 to, the end, uh, to uh, verse 38. Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. In this particular incident, our Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And afterwards, she went over to the town or the village of Sychar, and the Lord Jesus Christ remained at the well. In the meantime, his disciples came and offered him food. And he told them in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And uh, they were discussing amongst themselves, well, who brought him food? And this is when the Lord Jesus Christ said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish or accomplish his work. Here the Lord Jesus Christ took an opportunity to teach his disciples about true service. He's teaching them service is objective. It's zeal. Likewise, it's attitude and the outcome. You notice the objective is to do the will of God and to finish the work. You know, there are many works which have been started and not finished. There are many workers who start the work, but then they drop out. They don't finish it. And the work has to be finished at all and any cost. Remember Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, and they tried to dissuade him from going because chains and imprisonment awaited in Jerusalem. And he told him in verse 24, My very life is not dear unto me, that I may finish the course with joy and the ministry which the Lord has given me. You notice what he said, that nothing should stand in the way of completing the course. Our Lord Jesus Christ set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. He would not be dissuaded by anyone or anything to accomplish the will of God, to finish the work. So the objective is not only to start. There are many who start. The objective is to finish the work. The zeal, of course, is the passion, the energy which the work has done. And even life itself should not stand in the way 
and it should be at God's disposal. Remember Acts chapter 24, when Apostle Paul was before Agrippa and Festus. And Festus told him, Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. You know, uh, oftentimes, they call true disciples, true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, zealots or extremists. Now, of course, there's, there's bad zealousy and there's good zealousy. There's bad extremists, there's good extremists. We know about those. But really, when you think about it, the Lord Jesus Christ was a zealot. And he would be considered extremist today. Even by those who are Christian. When he uh, cleansed the temple, the disciples remembered the scripture which said, zeal for thy house has consumed me. You notice the Lord would not allow anything to stand in the way of God's glory and the sanctity of God's house. There were those who stood in the way. There were those who were going to take loss because of what he did. But he was zealous for his house. He was zealous for God's glory and what they have done to it. He would not allow anything to stand in the way. Apostle Paul is the same way. The rest of the apostles were the same way. They would not allow anything to stand in the way. In this case, it's the food. Remember when Satan tempted him? And the first temptation was to make bread out of stones. And you notice what the Lord Jesus Christ told him, that not, a, not a by bread alone will men live, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. You notice that the Lord Jesus Christ put away even bare necessities in order to accomplish the will of God. It was not the will of God for him to change those stones into bread. Apostle Paul said that even his life means nothing as long as he can accomplish the work of God. And therefore, all the heart, all the mind, all the strength, and all the resources should be devoted to this work. Apostle Paul says, for, for, for me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. Can, can you imagine what that means? How many of us can truly say that? That everything we do, our whole life revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet how many of us allow various things, such as education and position and possessions, in our free time, our personal time, our pleasures, to instead consume our time? And then the attitude in all these things is to be one of joy and delight, even in hardships. My meat, my satisfaction, my joy is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. You know, there is nothing in which the Lord Jesus Christ to greater delight, greater pleasure than serving God. And you notice that his attitude was one of joy, regardless of circumstances and outcome. Because very often... Uh, you see the circumstances around him, and they were not successful. Uh, very often, there were more rejections. As a matter of fact, when you look at his earthly life, his earthly ministry, you notice that his rejections and denials, and uh, there were more people crying out for his blood, more people hated him, more people rejected him than really came to him. So his, his joy was not in successes alone. 
No, his joy was to accomplish the will of God. To fulfill it. Often we are discouraged. And we are grieved. And there's fear. And likewise, we are distracted from the work. And you know, Satan uses each and every one of these to stop the work. He knows. He knows full well that when the work of God is finished, completely finished, that his time is over. And he will do whatever he can to prolong this time. And he will do whatever he can use every and every any available means that he has or he can use in order to stop this work. And you know, discouragement is one of them. It is easy to be discouraged. You know, we can invite people to come to the meeting and they refuse. We can witness to people, speak to them about their soul, about eternity, about salvation, about damnation, about God, about Christ, and they don't want to hear it. Or they politely just rebuff us. To the point that sometimes says, well, what's to use? What's to use? And many give up because of these rejections. Likewise, we can be discouraged when we come to the meeting and uh, there are those who don't want to have anything to do with the ministry. They want to come here on Sunday morning for the Lord's Supper and that's about it. You know, it could be very discouraging on Wednesday night as well. When there are 10 or 12 of us like they were last Wednesday night. You have to ask yourself a question. Well, if there's 100 or 120 of us here Sunday morning, where did the other 100 go? Where did the other 90 or 80? Is there no desire to be there? And you know, it's very discouraging. And there are those who even drop out on Wednesday night then. Because we had greater numbers, but then all of a sudden they kind of uh, slim down again. And I have no doubt some are just discouraged because others don't show up to support the assembly, the meeting. Sometimes we are discouraged and grieved because of certain things that are going on in the assembly. And then Satan also uses fear to stop the work. Now, those who are afraid for their lives, there's hostility out there, and people are afraid of being hurt of being rejected, of, of their property being taken, so they don't go into the work. They stop the work. There are many who came back from, from overseas because of fear. They were afraid for their lives, especially in Muslim countries and communist countries, and the work stops. And then the greatest one is distraction. You know, Satan uh, really uses this one to its, uh, to its limits, to the utmost. Distraction of all sorts. It could be our job. It could be our family. It could be various pleasures. It could be anything. But if we're distracted, so what do we do? We stop the work. We don't come. We don't come to the Wednesday night meeting. We don't come to the prayer meeting. We don't come to the Bible study. We are not interested in outreaches. We're not interested in, in, uh, in ministries. And the work stops. John Mark dropped out of work because there was something else that attracted him in Jerusalem, so he left the work. By the grace of God, he came back and he became profitable. There's another man who's very notoriously known for this. His name is Demas. 
Apostle Paul says, Demas has left me. What did he leave? Well, he left the work. That's what Apostle was involved in. But Demas has left me. Why did he leave? Distractions. Loving this present world. Things that the world offers. Each work has a beginning and an end. You notice the Lord Jesus Christ said that I may finish his work. His work. You notice it is his work. It is God's work. We are only employed in it. Since this is his work, it is his responsibility for the outcome and success. Not ours, not mine, not yours. Oftentimes we beat ourselves up because there's no success. We don't see people come to Christ. We don't see this and that. That's his responsibility. Not to your mind. You and I have a responsibility. You and I have an accountability. You and I have a stewardship entrusted to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Apostle Paul says, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And then he says, I can do this willingly and joyfully, and I have a reward. Or I can do it against my will, but I still have an accountability. I still have a responsibility entrusted to me. You know, he's the one who gives the increase. It is he who causes the growth, not you and I. You and I have a responsibility to present ourselves. You see, he gifted us. He has given us his spirit. His spirit will empower us to do the work. He will even give us the words to say. He will provide opportunities for us. He will give us grace, help to be able to do so. But we do need to present ourselves in a way that's acceptable to him. Truly as living in holy sacrifices. Or as vessels of honor, not dishonor. Vessels of honor to live a, and lead a holy life. And he will use us. But there must be that desire, that will. Yes, Lord, use me and present ourselves. And he'll do the rest. We can see this throughout the, uh, the centuries, how he has done it. As long as his people were willing and able. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect servant, teaching us by word and deed. And therefore, we need to be students of the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn of me. Learn from me. Walk with me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We need to heed to his words and to act upon them. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Lord Jesus Christ brings to us what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 7, at the end of that, uh, at the end of that chapter, he finishes that Sermon on the Mount with a parable. It is the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. Please pay attention to what he says. If any man hears these words of mine, and acts upon them can be compared to a wise man. And then he says, if any man hears these words of mine and does not act upon them, can be compared to a foolish man. Now, we generally apply this to salvation. Of course, the wise man uh, is saved and the foolish man is lost. But the Lord Jesus never says that, does he? He doesn't mention that either one of the, uh, the men were in the, the building when, when the storm attacked it. What is he concentrating on? The building, the work, and the storm. You notice that the storm attacked the building, not the builder. It is the building that fell, not the builder. We can say the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as Apostle Paul takes the same, same uh, application and applies it to building the church. And he specifically warns us, let no man build on another foundation, first of all. There's only one foundation. 
And then he instructs us how to build it in one foundation. And again, we see that we can build either way, either corruptible materials or incorruptible. And again, we see that the fire is the one that tests, not the man, not the builder. Test the work, the building. And even when the fire consumes the building, the builder is saved in both cases. So the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us we are to build on Him. The work that we do, whether it's to build our lives or to build an assembly, to build in the assembly, it is to be done through Him and on Him, not apart from Him. Ultimately, success of our labor is dependent on our obedience to His Word. You know, we have been fully equipped, but we must follow instructions. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. If any man strives for masteries, he must do so lawfully or according to the rules. What does that mean? You want to be a runner? You want to win a gold medal? And you go to the Olympics. You have to run according to the rules. Otherwise, what will happen? What will happen if you run your own way when you get to the finish line? What will the judges do? Disqualify you. You want to be a builder. You want to build a house. You want to build a building. You must do so according to the rules, according to rules and regulations. Because what will happen when the inspector shows up and you have not done so up to code? You will have to tear it down and start all over again. You'll be disqualified. It is the same with building in the Lord's field, building in the Lord's house, working on the Lord's field, in the Lord's vineyard. Must do so lawfully or according to the rules. We do have the rules. We have the instructions here, dear saints. How to do it. We have examples for us, too. Now, how do we discern the time and the place and a method and a means how to build? You notice what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Our minds are very attentive to earthly things, to their times and seasons. We know when the football season starts, when it finishes. We know when the playoffs start and they finish. We know when it comes to business. We know when it comes to, to uh, markets, stock markets and bond markets and so on and so forth. We know cycles in the business and all kinds of things. We know those things. They interest us. They concern us. But how slow are we often to discern spiritual times and seasons? You notice the disciples regarded Samaria as the most unlikely field of work. Why is that? Because of hostility between two races. In verse 9 of the same chapter, it says that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the disciples looked at Samaria as the worst place to work, to preach the gospel. Not even close. You know, often we judge perspective fields by their outward appearances. They're hostile. Or you don't want to go to such and such a country, you don't want to speak to such and such a kind of people because they're hostile to the gospel. And we know there's some hostility out there. But you know there was hostilities in, back then. Throughout the last 2,000 years there was hostilities against the gospel. But the gospel was still preached. Oftentimes we postpone it's not the right time yet. Maybe next year. Maybe three months from now. Maybe when it's 
more convenient time. But you know, is it up to us to make this determination or is it up to him? Is it his field or is it our field? Does he not decide when to sow and when to reap? You know, I was raised in a farming community and some of the people had a large estate, they had a large amount of uh, soil, acreage of soil, farmland. And it was them who decided where and when to sow and where and when to reap. Oftentimes, there were acres and acres of land. And it would say, you go and you sow in that particular field there. Why? Well, this one is still too wet. Or this one is dry. We need more rain in this one. But the other one is just right to be sown. Likewise, when it came to reaping. They had acres and acres of wheat and barley. So in May and June and July, but not every field was ready at the same time. So he says, go to this field first, and then we'll go to the other field, and then we'll go around and so on and so forth. Depends when it ripened. So it is up to him, dear saints, this is his field, when and where to go sow, and when and where to go harvest, to reap. In the story before us, the outward appearance was deceiving. It looked very unlikely. No, not Samaritans. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to this woman, and she accepted him as, as the Messiah. Lo and behold. And then she goes into town, into the town of Sychar, and those people came out, and they themselves accepted him as the Messiah. The most unlikely place, Samaria. Here we go, almost the whole village. But they're saying, just because this village was receptive doesn't mean that another village will be. Will it? Remember, on this particular occasion, Lord Jesus was coming from Judea to Galilee. And he went through Samaria and he stopped in this particular village. And they accepted him. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, he's coming back from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he stops, ready to stop in another village. And he sends two of his disciples ahead of him to go and prepare the village for him. And they rejected him. This is when John and James the sons of thunder, asked the Lord who would be permissible for them to call down fire and consume them. Success in one place cannot be interpreted as a mold for others. Just because the Lord may be working in one place, he may not be working the same way in the other place. One country, one kinds of people, and so on and so forth. Likewise, copying other works and workers will not necessarily produce the same results. And it's always tempting to do. Well, so-and-so are doing just fine. We need to copy exactly what they're doing. You know how many times I heard that? And how many times we have done it and tried it? And guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing. We had people imported and brought them here to show us how to do it. And not necessarily here, but in our assembly. And nothing happened. Spirit of God, dear saints, works his own way. So, what is the way? There is one way which will guarantee results every time. What is that way? Look what the Lord Jesus Christ tells them. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, or look up. Now look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Look up is the command for success. Now, some suggest 
that the Lord was pointing to the large number of Samaritans coming to him. As the woman went to the town of Sikar, or village of Sikar, and she told them about uh, the man who told her everything about herself. Is he not the Messiah? So they came, and they were running, coming towards him from the town of Sikar. And I had no doubt they were coming to him. But you notice, the Lord Jesus Christ here is teaching his disciples a lesson. And since four months was only a teaching comparison of postponement, disciples didn't really come to the Lord and say, Lord, it's going to be four more months before Samaritans are ready. They never told them that. The Lord is teaching them. And therefore, look up is a look up towards heaven. Look towards the Father. Look towards the Master of the harvest. Look towards Him in prayer. Pray that you may be able to see where and when the harvest is going on. Look up to Him. Look to the Master. Let Him open your eyes. Luke chapter 21. When you see these things happening, look up. Same word is used. Look up, for your redemption is near. What are we looking up to? We're looking up to Him. John chapter 17 and verse 1. When it says, And He lifted His eyes towards heaven, that is in His high priestly prayer. Same word is used. Look up. Lift your eyes towards heaven. In prayer, that is, that you may be able to see that He may direct you. You know, you and I do not know where and when the Spirit of God is working unless we ask. You know, He's the plowman, not you and I. You and I are not told to plow. You and I are told to sow and to reap. He's the one who's preparing the hearts. He's the one who's preparing people to receive it. You know, oftentimes we sow the seed, but it's on a hard ground because it has never been prepared yet. He must prepare it first. That's his job. That's his work. And you and I do not know how the Spirit works when he works unless we ask and be directed to that place of work. We cannot tell how many more months there are to harvest unless we ask. You know, remember Asia? Asia was not ready until Macedonia received the gospel first. Did not Asia need the gospel? Of course they did. But the Spirit of God was not working there at the time. He prepared Macedonia. And when Apostle Paul and company went to Macedonia, he was preparing Corinth. He was preparing Asia, Asia Minor. And then we see them coming to Asia Minor, and many assemblies were established. But it's at Spirit's direction. It is He who plows the heart. It is He who prepares the soil. And then it's up to us to sow that seed. And therefore, every aspect of Christian ministry must include prayer of faith. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ promised that the church will do great things, great works. Look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. These works he's not speaking about are not signs and wonders and miracles, dear saints. These are works. This is bringing people to Christ unto eternal life. And we know that they have done greater works than him. We'll go over them in a minute. But look what he says next. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You notice that when he's telling us that we'll be able to do greater works than these, greater things that he has done, he, right, he follows it up with prayer. But you notice it is not us doing the work. He says, I will do 
verse 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. It is he who does the work in any way. But he does it through us. Dear saints, let me ask you, when was the last time, and I asked to ask myself this question when I was going over this. When was the last time I stood on this promise? The greater works than these you will do. When was the last time we got together? I'm not accusing. I'm looking at myself, but when was the last time we got together? In a full prayer meeting, I says, Lord, this is a promise. We want to claim this promise. What do we need to do? It's promised, dear saints. Great harvest is promised. How often do we sing that song about showers of blessing? Oh, we can see drops. When was the last time we seen a shower in this assembly? A shower of blessing like that. We see drops. And we're grateful for them. Very grateful. Showers? Great works? Greater than these? So we need to pray. You know, since he called us to work, we have a right to pray for that work. And here is an example for us. We have a right to pray for that work. Remember in uh, Acts chapter 1, in verse 14, we see 120 of them praying since the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ until uh, second chapter, 10 days passed. They're praying for 10 days. And what happens in second chapter? How many are saved? 3,000. And then later on, another 5,000. These are the great works that Lord Jesus Christ did through them. You notice that when the Lord Jesus Christ was walking this earth and his earthly ministry, what was the most that got saved? All together in three and a half years, 500 brethren. But now in one day, 3,000. Next day, 5,000 were added. That's 8,000 in a matter of a few days. Great works due to prayer. We have the right to ask for this. It's our right because he called us. We have the authority to ask for it. And not just false profession. We're not talking about those. We're talking about something that will last, chapter 15 of John. That your work may last, that your fruit may be, may be lasting unto eternal life. Real professions and going for Christ. It is all possible, but we need to claim it. We need to be here. We need to pray about it. You know, we might have ideas. We need to come to the Lord. Evangelism is the work of the church, not an individual effort. And oftentimes we kind of split these up. Well, he's an evangelist, he's a missionary, and we do our own work here. But as members of one body, we are to function in unity as we are led by the Holy Spirit. Our individual gifts are to be used for the benefit of the whole church. We are to build the church, or he's building the church through us. Now, building of the church doesn't just mean building up each other in our most holy faith. It is also to add on or add into the church, to add those living stones into the building. So it's numbers as well. And these are living stones, so yes, we are to be built up as well, individually. So the church grows both ways, in numbers and likewise in maturity. Evangelism is a foundation of building the church. We preach Christ and him crucified. Who does it? Missionaries? No, it's the church that does it. It's the church that sends out missionaries, if you will. 
Spirit of God through the church. But it should be all one together, working together, using our gifts in order to bring people to Christ, to invite them, to, to give them a gospel message, to, to uh, uh, bring them to Christ and then to nurture them as well. And then to send out some more out. And therefore, this must be a united effort that begins in a prayer meeting. We may have all kinds of ideas and preferences and how to do the work and how we should evangelize, but you know, and I have some ideas too, but you know, I have to remind myself I'm not the head and I'm not the master architect. He is. And therefore, we must wait on the Holy Spirit through prayer and, a, and in any kind of outreach and building of the church must start in a prayer meeting. We need to be led from point to point from start all the way to finish by the Holy Spirit, not to do it ourselves. You notice what the Lord Jesus Christ says, one sows and another reaps. You know, sowing must be done before reaping takes place. You don't see a farmer going out into these fields in July or August to, uh, with his harvesters, and he's never sown any seed. He would be a foolish man, wouldn't he? How often is it that we... we uh, are disappointed because when we give the gospel to someone, we expect them to accept it because it just makes sense, and they reject it. But let me ask you, have you ever asked, did anybody sow seed here? Was the word of God ever given to them before by anybody? Clearly. So really, we should not be disappointed because as Lord Jesus said, it must be sowing first. And we see this throughout his ministry and all the way on. There must be sowing before reaping can take place. We can't just expect to go and, and a bunch of people get saved. And when they don't, we get upset and we get, we get frustrated and so on and so forth and discouraged and don't want to do it anymore. And this is so easy to do, to get discouraged. But these saints, have we done any kind of sowing first? Has the word of God been given? You know, this bountiful crop gathered at Sikar was the result of earlier sowing. How do we know? Well, the woman knew about the Messiah, and so did the, the, the inhabitants of Sikar. They knew about the Messiah. Somebody told them about the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ came, and he identified himself as the Messiah. I am the one who you're waiting for. Because remember the woman said, we know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. So she was familiar with the Messiah. Somebody must have told them about the Messiah. Somebody did earlier sowing. And the Lord Jesus Christ came and gathered in them unto eternal life. Those 3,000 and 5,000 that were saved on the day of the Pentecost and afterwards. Who did the sowing? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they entered into his labor. But he did the sowing. The sowing was done by him. They didn't just, Peter just preached and all of a sudden 5,000 were saved. The, sow, the seed was sown already. This is what the Lord Jesus is trying to tell us. He says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit to eternal life. That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. It must be sown if you want to do any kind of reaping. But you know, sowing generally takes greater effort. It's usually accompanied by tears. Psalm 126 and verse 6. He who carries his bag of seed with tears will come back here in his sheaves with joy. When it comes to sowing, 
much prayer, much effort, much patience, much rejection, much contempt will be accompanied. The sower may labor and work hard a long time without seeing any fruit at all. And then somebody else comes behind him and he reaps them into eternal life. But look what the Lord Jesus Christ said. That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. It is a united effort. So we are not to be discouraged when no one gets saved. We need to pray and ask the Lord to deliver us, to lead and to guide us into the right fields, where to sow. And just because nobody gets saved, we should not be discouraged. That is up to him whether he wants to send us out there again to reap them into eternal life, or he's going to send somebody else. But ultimately, at the judgment seat of Christ, what if God says here? That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. We have work to do. And it's the work of the whole assembly. It is the work of prayer and for guidance. Where should we sow? Where should we go and preach the gospel? We need to have a, 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 an outreach for adults. We have outreach for children. But we need to have outreach for adults as well. And we need to pray and ask the Lord's guidance and then not be disappointed when no one comes to Christ because we don't know when the Lord will reap them into eternal life because we know for a fact that if, if the Holy Spirit is the one, Holy Spirit is the plowman and he plows the heart, and he sends us to sow that seed into that plowed soil, into those ready hearts. Sooner or later, there will be reaping. There will be harvest. But we need to make ourselves available. And it starts in a prayer meeting. Wednesday night. Determination. Let us pray for an outreach. Let us pray for lost souls in this particular neighborhood. Lord, where would you have us go? When? How? Let him decide that, and he will, if we might make, make, make ourselves available. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you don't have to turn, I'll just read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, last verse, Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of of the Lord, knowing that you toil is not in vain in the Lord. If we are faithful, we have instructions here. We don't need to borrow from anybody else here, saints, anybody's book. Okay? This is from him directly. And if we follow the instructions and we trust in his faithfulness, we stand on his promises. We will not be disappointed. Your toil, your work, your labor will not be in vain. May the Lord bless his word. A loving God and our Heavenly Father, we are thankful and grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and for that blessed word. Father, we do thank thee that thou hast given us the desire to be here tonight. And Father, we do pray that would give us desire to be on Wednesday night as well. Father, that was given us the opportunity to be co-workers with thyself. 
in thy field, on thy building. But Father, we need direction, we need guidance. In some cases, we need will, we need a desire to do so. Please help us. We have thy promise. We have the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we do need a, a, that desire, that, that fervency, that fire within to trust in thy promises, to stand on thy promises. And Father, don't allow us to be disheartened. Don't allow the enemy to frighten us away from work. Because this is thy work. This is to thy glory and to thy honor. So we commit ourselves to thee. We ask for thy blessing. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, just to let you know,